Okay, so hope everybody is doing great today. Welcome back, Matrix Breakers. We're going to go over some news and information items. I'm going to be reading from the Zero Hedge. Uh, I have about five articles pulled up right now, and they literally, the, the topics are wide ranging. So if anybody's curious about the actual uh, articles I'm reading, you can, I'll post each one in the description in the podcast, yeah, the podcast description. <laughs> so if you actually listen to the podcast, you can actually go ahead and read yourself some of these articles. But what I'm gonna do for you is I'm gonna read some of them and then we're going to discuss each thing. Um, we're gonna do it in detail. I'm gonna give you my analysis over these particular articles. So let's get right into it. The first one is the United States should avoid waging a two-front cold war. So this is very interesting. Uh, let's read about this article. The Biden administration appears to be heading in the direction of waging a two-front cold war over Ukraine and Eastern Europe and Taiwan and East Asia, both of which could turn hot any day. The imprudence of such an approach should be obvious, but the great danger is that such crisis could get out of hand before the leaders involved step back from the brink. Um, you know, recently there was a a Republican senator. So it's this is really both sides of the aisle uh, in terms of politics. It was a Republican senator that openly stated that you know nuclear bombs were off or were on the table when it comes to Russia. So I want you to think about that for a moment. You know, nuclear weapons are on the table. I mean, what the fuck is that even supposed to mean? They're literally threatening nuclear war over a part of Ukraine that arguably is more Russian than Ukraine. If anybody knows anything about Eastern Europe, Eastern Europe, all these different countries, Lithuania, even Poland to some extent, and Russia, I mean, these countries used to all be one you know, empire, <laughs> um, many times over, by the way. Uh, so I think that there's so many different alliances, if you will. I think there's so many loyalties in that region to different areas because it's so congested there. And just, you know, you're going to end up getting a lot of diversity and a lot of diversity creates a lot of issues. Well, there are people who swear their allegiance to Russia, swear their allegiance to Putin. They believe that Putin is sort of, you know, the catalyst of, of a savior almost uh, to these people in Ukraine. While other people in Ukraine are more, you know, they want to be independent. They don't want Russia's influence in Ukraine for whatever their reasons can be. Um, you know, clearly what we see in Russia is a country that has pulled out of the Soviet Union, that Soviet Union collapsed in the 90s. And today, Russia is kind of like more Christian and I guess you could say even more Western than the West. Uh, what do I mean by that? It's it's more capitalist than the West. I mean, the West like hates itself. It hates capitalism. There's all this propaganda around hating capitalism while Russia is realizing how amazing capitalism is and is embracing free markets over there. Now, Putin's not perfect and people can argue about Putin all they want. Um, but at the end of the day, Putin's actually a leader of his country. Like he is actually in control. So uh, with that being said, there's also China. Um, and I mean, I'm going to read from the article. Let's see what they cover. And then I might get into details around it. So Russia's Vladimir Putin may want to extend Russia's rule to Ukraine and other former Soviet republics. Again, these are sort of, again, like I said, it used to be an old empire. But he definitely wants to ensure the end of NATO expansion. Um, you know, NATO is, you know, this, this alliance that is like the U.S., it's Australia, it's 
the UK. It's almost like the five eyes. You, know, you can put Canada in there, New Zealand even. And NATO has been this, this alliance after World War II. And these countries involved in NATO have been very interested and have been really, um, I guess you could say, uh, fighting over influence in Ukraine and Eastern Europe in general for since since World War II. I mean, since after World War II. Because, like I said, the Soviet Union fell in the 90s. But again, you almost have a, a real empire in the United States and in these other Western powers that make up NATO. So China's Xi Jinping, uh, that's the president there, like all of his predecessors, wants Taiwan unified with the mainland. And while he would prefer to do it peacefully, he may be willing to risk war with the United States to achieve his goal, especially if he believes he can win such a war at an acceptable cost. This is very important. Um, Taiwan, just so you understand geography, is a little island. It's not even that small, actually. It's a pretty large island. It's an island nation right off the coast of China. And it is from 1949, Mao Zedong and the revolution there in China. It is the uh, it, it's the safe haven for all the capitalists who left communist China um, back when there was a war in the 1950s. So Taiwan is really made up of a lot of defectors, I guess you could call them. These are people that did not go along with the communist takeover of China. Uh, they were not involved in Red China. They wanted to escape it. And many of them, their family members, I'm talking like recent, like their parents and their grandparents um, were literally slaughtered uh, by the communists in China. So to say that they don't get along very well in Taiwan and China um, would be an understatement, obviously. You know, we, we're looking at fresh blood still stained I guess you could say, in that area, in that region of the world. And so Taiwan's not just going to, you know, jump on in to uh, the, the hands of China and, and the Communist Party. So ultimately, it's going to end up in war. Um, China's trying to do what they did to Hong Kong, if anybody knows about that. The, the Hong Kong is, it's a city, but essentially it is like a region. It's like a small, it's like a state. You could say it's a state. And it belonged to the British for a while. And that's where there was this British port for years. And then the British made an agreement that, Okay, Hong Kong can go back into China's hands after a, a, a series of events would happen and unfold, and that's how that happened. Well, China came in and basically turned Hong Kong into a communist place. Hong Kong protesters were everywhere. It was violent. I mean, it was violent. And there were people being kidnapped uh, by the Chinese Communist Party. I mean, they worked their ass off, right under Trump's nose, by the way, to take over Hong Kong. And so they've done it in Hong Kong, and if they can do something similar, uh, and what they did with Hong Kong... Yes, there was some violence, but ultimately they were able to do it politically. They were able to infiltrate Hong Kong politics, and the Chinese Communist Party essentially took over Hong Kong. Uh, at least took over all the power sectors of Hong Kong, right? And so that leaves the Biden administration. I'm reading from the article now. That leaves the Biden administration, which to date has been sending mixed signals to both Russia and China. Uh, administration spokespersons, that's really who's running the White House, it seems like, because Biden doesn't even know who he is or where he's going. Um, the spokespersons have warned of severe consequences should Russia invade Ukraine. But President Biden has stated that those consequences will be primarily economic in the form of sanctions. Well, Russia has been dealing with sanctions from the U.S. for like since the Soviet Union, right? So um, to say that Russia 
can be independent of the United States is also an understatement. I do believe that, again, this is the same bully pulpit that we have in the United States, which is the world reserve currency. Because we have the world reserve currency, we are able to sanction other nations, meaning that we are able to um, inflict unbelievable economic damage onto a nation because we control the trade of all the goods based on our currency because our currency being the world reserve currency you know they have to transact in US dollars so when you when when the United States sanctions a nation like we've done to Iran um this is why Iran is buying up all the bitcoin and they are mining bitcoin in Iran right now as we speak they love bitcoin in Iran they are actually thinking that that will be the world reserve currency in some nearby future and again as the world does turn around we are looking at a cryptocurrency like bitcoin to become the world reserve, something that is divorced from governments and the governments can't use like a weapon system the way the United States has used the US dollar as a weapon system. And so once again, here we are, Biden threatening sanctions on Russia. When Russia literally made it a national agenda to grow their own food, be independent of all other nations, have national sovereignty, have pride in their nation. I mean, like the people in Russia, not everybody, but the people in Russia, you know, if you study it long enough, you realize that they are very proud and they are focused on being independent from any other nation. They don't want to rely on, you know, food from other nations. They don't want to rely on energy from other nations. They don't want to rely on any kind of agricultural products from other nations. They don't want to rely on, frankly, anything, especially also military support from any other nations. You know, Russia has developed a large enough military to defend themselves and be a world power. I mean, they have their own nuclear weapons since the the 1950s and 1960s during the Cold War. So again, here we are with this idea of sanctions. Meanwhile, President Biden has stated that the United States will defend Taiwan in the event of a Chinese attack. But administration spokespersons, once again, people who are mouthpieces for the for the administration right now, um, have walked that back. Um, you know, they reaffirmed the U.S. policy of strategic ambiguity. This is a recipe for confusion, misunderstanding, and possibly war on two fronts. So, what this article is essentially saying is that the idea of war is based off of really the United States at this point, their word does not matter. Ultimately, their word doesn't matter. So Biden is, is he's half asleep, half awake, half conscious, unconscious. He might be dead already. He might be a fake human being. Who knows what he is, but clearly he's not running the country. And so when you see the United States is just sort of being run by some debilitated person and you're getting mixed signals from this like collective collective group of people who say they represent the United States. They, oh, the Defense Department says something, but then the State Department says something else. And then the UN ambassador says something else. So like there's just a lot of confusion. There's not a unitarian approach to any policy right now on the, on the worldwide scale. And that's what's most embarrassing about our country right now. You know, they thought that Trump was this big issue because Trump was so, um, they thought of him as, you know, uh, spontaneous, rambunctious, random, uh, not controlled, right? Like he could do anything kind of thing. Um, and that's one sort of element of, you know, okay, we don't want that. Uh, some people don't want that, right? While at the same time, at least there was one person in charge. Like ultimately Trump was in charge. I mean, he did do things that didn't get actually done. Like he said things 
and he wanted things done and they didn't get done. That is true. So it's not like he was really in control of everything. But the point is, is like on an international level, people knew that what Trump said is what Trump meant. And he followed that up with action. And he did that multiple times, whether it was sanctions, whether that was trade deals, whether that was missile attacks or anything national security, he pretty much confirmed and did with his word. So um, that's interesting, right? This muddled U.S. approach, I'm reading from the article again, uh, was highlighted, highlighted, yeah, highlighted at the recent summit for democracy, where the U.S. president portrayed international politics as a global struggle between democracies and autocracies and characterized the United States as democracy's champion. Biden and other American democracy proponents appear to have forgotten the wise counsel of Secretary of State John Quincy Adams, that America was the well-wisher of freedom to all but champion only of her own. Um, of course, you know, we love the founding fathers. You know, we want to refer back to that. The U.S. democracy proponents have likewise forgotten the prudent diplomacy of Richard Nixon and Henry Kissinger that sought America's geopolitical benefit to exploit the divisions and fissures between the two most powerful autocracies and the Eurasian landmass. This was during the Soviet Union, during the whole Cold War era, I mean, afterward, but still very important to realize that what is America's benefit? Look, I mean, people can complain about, you know, America and, and, and all this stuff. At the end of the day, if you're, if you're running a country, if you're running a family, if you're running a business, you do want to have that business or that nation in mind when making decisions, just like you have yourself in mind when making decisions. Have you ever entered a business deal or a relationship, a romantic relationship, where you really didn't have your own best interests in mind and you were so giving and selfless that you forgot about who you were and you got into a business or you got involved in some project and you basically didn't even you know, get anything out of it because you weren't upfront about your shit. You weren't saying, hey, this is what I feel and this is how I'll benefit, yada, yada. That's kind of what the U.S. is doing. We're like aimless. We don't have a lot of strategic, you know, input on the world and international affairs. We're just sort of running in circles and not knowing what the fuck or who the fuck we are. Um, so foreign policy and strategy involve understanding and prioritizing threats and then devoting the necessary resources to meet those threats. That's perfectly said about foreign policy. If you want to rewind, you should re you should rewind and listen to it again. I don't have the time to say it. China clearly possesses the greatest threat to U.S. national security interests in the Indo-Pacific region and beyond. The Biden administration's focus should be there, and it should allocate resources accordingly. Here's the issue. That so what this article is saying from this opinion piece basically. Uh, is that the U.S. should focus everything on China. Everything should be focused on China. All the money, all the funding, all the weapon systems, everything that we have from a national security perspective should be focused on the Indo-Pacific region, which is Hawaii, which is this Taiwan area. You know, all of this should be, all of our American manpower should be over there. Now, I mean, not all, not every single last piece, right? We still have military base in Germany and Europe. We still have that kind of level of... of, of commitment there. And and here's the thing with NATO. NATO is like a collective of a, of countries. So it's it's Americans, it's it's Australians, it's British, it's 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 a whole collective. So, you know, that at least can be handled through them and that that could be limited. I understand that. I think that that's wonderful. And so we should just commit in that level in that capacity over there in Europe. We shouldn't be overdoing ourselves in Europe because that compromises ourselves. You know what China wants the most is for us to get involved in Ukraine. That's what China would want the most. So you have Chinese backed US politicians, Chinese funded US politicians that would actually advocate for an attack on Russia, just like that Republican did, just like the Democrats are doing. They're all in the same camp. 
in a sense, they all want to attack Russia. They want to sort of pose this threat on Russia because Russia, uh, very much like Trump, Putin, is not controlled. He is not under the globalist thumb anymore, just like the Soviet Union. Soviet Union was under the thumb of communism for years. So that's the, the idea there. So that's finishing up that article. There's a lot of things unfolding with, um, you know, the... The, the Pacific front, the Chinese front, the Russian front, there's so many different elements that are going into this now that you have to realize that, you know, you, you know, you can't just, you can't just allocate resources and divide yourself and then have misspoken words on both fronts and not have real opinions about them or real policy. No, no, no there's no real policy formulated for it, right? Here's the next article. Um, the next article is, is also very important. It is uh, the Florida Surgeon General. So that's like the head, you know, doctor in that state. That's what that position would be cons considered. Um, the Florida Surgeon General, he says, if you have no symptoms, please don't get tested. So Florida Surgeon General, a Dr. Joseph, issued new guidance for COVID-19 tests on January 4th in a bid to reduce the strain on the state's testing centers. This is very, very good. So many people are using the centers. The availability of tests is under pressure. We are going to scale back, he says. We're coming back to something sensible, he says. People have been flooding Florida testing sites, leading to long lines, he said. Instead of restricting testing, however, um, the Surgeon General said he would place a new emphasis on high-value testing against those of low value in order to give priority to tests that would likely change outcomes based on a positive or a negative result. For example, someone who is elderly with pre-existing medical conditions and is having symptoms he regards as high value. Someone who is otherwise healthy with no pre-existing medical issues and with no symptoms is low value, he explained. Um, he also said people need to get back to a sense of normalcy in society. Wow, what a perfectly stated um, situation here. You know, um, this U.S. or not the U.S. Surgeon General, but the Florida Surgeon General is making the most sense of anybody I've personally seen. So have you noticed in your local area, a lot of testing sites are being overwhelmed. The testing centers, are, have, they have super long lines. Down the street from my house, there's this, um, there's a testing center. I forgot they remade it and it was something else. But there's a testing center and there has been long lines there for, I mean, I think for a couple weeks now, guys. Um, and maybe that's for the holidays. They wanted to get tested to make sure before seeing family. Or what we're seeing is people have the motherfucking cold. They have the flu. It's flu season. So people are normally getting sick, especially those that are vaccinated, especially those that are vaccinated. And there's all the evidence that points to that. So I'll get to that. Of course, I've gotten to that many, many times. But what we're seeing is a lot of vaccinated people are getting sick. People who got vaccinated, who otherwise wouldn't really get sick or got sick once a year, are now all of a sudden getting sick quite often. How do you add that up? Healthy people who are vaccinated are getting colds and flus like never before. This is because of antibody-dependent enhancement. This is what we've been talking about this entire time on the podcast, why you should not get this vaccine and why not only that, you shouldn't get it. You don't even need it. It doesn't even work. It's like there's layers on layers and layers on layers on layers of reasoning why you should not get this vaccine. You go all the way down to fucking, 
nanotech and satanic fucking worship. I mean, you can go all the layers. I don't, I don't really care to get into that right now. The point is, is that clearly we are seeing a lot of people have the common cold. So people are in line and they're getting tested for COVID and then they're getting COVID positive. The way we have it set up in Colorado is, you know, the more cases, the positive numbers in different counties, different levels, that is going to dictate the kind of lockdown that we have, the mask requirements and all this other bullshit. So what Florida is essentially saying, which is, again, leading the country, and I would say leading the world in common sense, basically saying, look, if you are an elderly person and you are feeling symptoms and you would like to get tested, go get tested, which I also disagree with. You know why? Because as soon as you're COVID positive, which could be the flu, could be the cold, as soon as you're COVID positive, you are not allowed to get treatment except a vaccine or a ventilator or a remdesivir. Do you see how that works? So really, in general, overall, if we're really looking at it, testing is really fucking stupid. Because if you have a positive test, you're not even able to get regular fucking medical care. You're not even able to get the things that you actually need. So ultimately, testing is just botched anyways. But what this guy is saying, at least at some level, he's making more sense. He's saying, look, if you're elderly, you're compromised, and you know you really ought to get the COVID test, then sure, you're able, you're a high value. I like that. This is this guy is making fucking sense to me. But then you've got a low value, which is hey, somebody who's healthy and okay, they have some symptoms, or maybe they're not even symptomatic. Like get out of line. Like don't go and get tested. It's not just because. He doesn't want people um, waiting in long lines. That's not the point. The point of the tests is to create the artificial idea that there's a bunch of COVID cases. But in reality, there's a lot of people with a common cold. Where in reality, there's a lot of people with the flu. And in reality, the vaccine doesn't work and the vaccine's making you sick. So you get deeper and deeper and deeper into this. You're starting to realize that there's, there's a lot more to it. And so I applaud the, uh, you know, the Florida Surgeon General for coming out and saying, you know, this is ridiculous. Don't be getting tested all the time. So these are some other quotes by him. We need to unwind this sort of planning and living one's life around testing. This is so important. Wow. Like, let me repeat that. Actually, this is what coming from the Florida Surgeon General. We need to unwind this sort of planning and living one's life around testing. It's really time for people to be living to make the decisions they want regarding vaccination, to enjoy the fact that many people have natural immunity, and to unwind this preoccupation with only COVID as determining the boundaries and constraints and possibilities of life. That should be literally on a billboard all over the freaking world. Let me repeat that. It's really time for people to be living, to make decisions they want regarding vaccination, to enjoy the fact that many people have natural immunity and to unwind this preoccupation with only COVID as determining the boundaries and constraints and possibilities of life. And we're going to start that in Florida. I mean, look at that. Look at this guy. This guy could run for fucking president. Okay. Uh, He continues. What we're seeing in cases is actually just a fraction of what's happening in the community. For example, the CDC estimates that only one in four cases of COVID are diagnosed. That may be even bigger ratio than Omicron, right? With Omicron. A substantial share based on the data we have from some of our hospitals and the patients in hospitals with COVID are there in the hospital with COVID rather than for COVID. 
So what he's saying is that, okay, people are in the hospital because they got heart disease. They got lung disease. They got, they got kidney cancer. They got all these fucking problems. But what's happening is the testing is so, so prevalent that, you know, it says there's a COVID positive test, but that guy is not symptomatic. There's, he's sick with kidney disease. So ultimately it's not about the COVID. It's about the kidney disease, but it doesn't matter because he's in the hospital and he's going to get tested anyways. And this is just going to continue to add to the COVID numbers. I mean, at what point do you run out of COVID cases? Like obviously people think that they can get it again. So in reality, they can't. We know that now with science showing you cannot get COVID twice. You can only get the flu and the cold. You can't get COVID twice. So Moving on from that, I'm going to um, I'm going to go into this other article, the defend the defense of Robert Merlone. I'm going to put it that way because that the article name I, I can't even say it correctly. Um, but the, the in defense of Robert Malone, Dr. Robert Malone. So as you all know, um, Dr. Robert Malone just did a recent podcast with Joe Rogan and Dr. Robert Malone. Let me explain who he is and why this matters. But he, when he went on Joe Rogan, everyone should watch that, that, um, that podcast or listen to it. However you want to look at it. I know you're listening to this podcast right now, but later on you should listen to Joe Rogan and Dr. Robert Malone. It's, It's pretty amazing. So let's check this out. Dr. Robert Malone is a U.S. virologist and immunologist who has dedicated his professional existence to the development of mRNA vaccines. In the 1980s, Malone worked as a researcher at the Salk Institute for Biological Studies, where he conducted studies on messenger um, acid or mRNA technology in the early 1990s. Malone collaborated with a guy named John A. Wolf and Denise A. Carson, two eminent scientists on a study that involved synthesization, right? Or yeah, synthesization. Did I even say that right? In fact, Malone is the father of the mRNA vaccines. I think he also has patents, by the way. So this guy literally made the mRNA vaccines. So he's probably the most significant person to talk to about these issues that we're seeing today. Um, As you can see, Malone is no ordinary man. I'm kind of skipping guys. Uh, Malone is no ordinary man. In fact, he's rather extraordinary man. Uh, Before embarking on a distinguished career in science, Malone worked as a carpenter and as a farmhand. Becoming a doctor was a lofty aspiration, but through hard work and determination, his dream became a reality. Over the course of three decades, Malone has established himself as one of the most competent people in the fields of virology and immunology. So, Malone is arguably the most qualified person in the world to speak on what we as a society should and shouldn't be doing during the pandemic. Yet for reasons that we that will become abundantly clear, he finds himself ostracized, largely silenced, and cut off from scientific community. Why? Two months ago, or two months before his Twitter account was suspended, Malone wrote a rather uh, prophetic Twitter post. This is him on Twitter. I am going to speak bluntly, he wrote. Physicians who speak out are being actively hunted via medical boards and the press. They are trying to delegitimize us and pick us off one by one. He finished by warning that this is not a conspiracy theory, but a fact. He urged us all to wake up. Sadly, many of us are still asleep. In my research for this piece, it seems clear to me that Malone has been silenced, not because he's some quack spouting nonsense, but because he challenged and still challenges the overarching narrative about vaccines and the lethality of COVID-19. Malone was recently interviewed by Joe Rogan, 
For the uninitiated, Rogan is the host of the most influential podcast in the world. At one point during the three-hour interview, Malone referred to Dr. Anthony Fauci as Tony Fauci, a man he knows personally. Malone, in other words, knows where all the skeletons are hidden. The same is true for Dr. Peter McCullough, another world-renowned expert who has appeared on Rogan's podcast. Prior to writing this piece, I consulted both Malone and McCullough. Funny enough. So this guy writing this article on the Zero Hedge is, is in communication with these two very you know prominent doctors. And so over the course of the past 18 months, Malone has been painted as some kind of anti-vax fringe scientist, a man of questionable merit who's spouting nonsense. Well, he's not. Malone happens to be vaccinated. All he has ever asked for is the chance to have frank and honest discussions on vaccines. In his own words, vaccines have saved many lives. But it is also increasingly clear that there are some risks associated with these vaccines, Malone said. Various governments have attempted to deny that this is the, this is the case, but they are wrong. Vaccination association, associated coagulation is a risk. Cardiotoxicity is a risk. Those are proven and discussed in official USG communications, as well as communications from a variety of other governments. Malone isn't a crazed conspiracy theorist. He's a man who's intimately familiar with the benefits and the risks of vaccines. He's a proponent of informed consent. Perhaps before letting someone inject a vaccine into your body, you should be fully informed of the risks involved, he says. He isn't an unreasonable man. So again, this is just, I'm going to finish up there, guys. This is in defense of Dr. Robert Malone. If you don't know who that is, now you kind of do. And more importantly, you should listen to the podcast that he did with Joe Rogan. I think that podcast alone is waking up or breaking the internet, I guess you could say. So um, another aspect uh, that I wanted to get into was this idea of nuclear power. So the article starts off with saying, hey, we've got a problem. And, uh, you know, it's, it's that a lot of people are going to start using energy. Actually, let me see if I can get that. Yes. Okay, here we go. Um, I'm going to continue. I'm in the middle of the article. So just go with me here. But you do have to recognize that the world is going to need more power and soon. So they're talking about power all over the world, like electricity, okay? Global electricity demand will double over the next 30 years as people in developing countries acquire the same toys and habits as people in rich countries. Today, the average person in China consumes about uh, around one-third of the electricity of someone in the United States. The average Indian, one-tenth. It won't be long before they, too, buy fridges the size of walk-in closets, view long, hot showers as a birthright, and keep the air conditioning running 24-7. Fossil fuels also won't cut it. Same with wind, solar, hydrogen, lithium batteries, or millions of mice on tiny tricycles. It won't be enough. But most folks completely skip over the safest, most efficient, cheapest, and cleanest energy of them all. Last year, when most investors were watching their stocks plummet, one Wall Street legend's unfair advantage was identifying winning stocks with massive upside, um, like Riot Blockchain before it shot up 10,000 in less than 12 months, Digital Turbine before it shot up 789% in eight months, uh, before it, uh, Overstock.com before it shot up to 1,000%. Clients have paid as much as $5,000 per month to see this kind of research. So here's what they're looking at. Nuclear power. There's no real choice. Here's what's important. I think it's very, very crucial for people to understand this. Nuclear power provides around 10% of the world's electricity and roughly 20% in the U.S. That's about twice the combined contribution of solar and wind. That's a fair amount, but increasingly, it faces challenges from 
not in my backyard, nuclear protesters, as well as the coal and oil lobbies. So the coal, think about this, coal and oil and the environmentalists all hate nuclear power. But what's the truth? Which know a threat when they see it. And of course, the occasional nuclear meltdown casts a pall over things. Popular perception of nuclear power safety is divorced from reality. So is nuclear power really that dangerous? Let's find out. It's like air travel. You're about 100 times more likely to die uh, per mile traveled in an auto accident than in a plane crash. In fact, nuclear power saves lives compared with the alternatives. One study found that Germany's phase out of nuclear power plants in reaction to the Fukushima accident, which was horrific, by the way, in favor of coal-fired power has caused more than a thousand additional deaths per year due to higher air pollution. So you have coal. If you don't have the clean coal like the U.S. does, you have dirty coal, and that dirty coal turns into air pollution. Air pollution turns into health side effects for people. <clears throat> the human race is between the rock of global warming and the hard place of the need for more power. <clears throat> There's no choice. It has to be nuclear. The price of uranium has been slowly reflecting this reality. It's doubled since lows in 2016, and it's nearly up 50% in 2021 to around $44 per pound. <clears throat> but that's still a long way from its peak of $140 a pound in 2007. So you have this idea, this nuclear power is this, this low-cost energy that everyone got super scared of because this horrific Fukushima accident. But in reality, it's not that dangerous. It's actually clean, okay? Um Let's see. I'm reading this article. I'm trying to find out what's going on. It costs uranium miners around $60 per pound to get the stuff out of the ground. The cost of uranium languishing below that level for years has resulted in most uranium producers going bust or being bought for pennies on the dollar by wealthier competitors. At some point, either the lights will go off or uranium will have to cost a lot more. It shouldn't be long before uranium gets back up to $60 level and keep rising as nuclear contain, continues to gain currency as the real clean energy. And there's a potential near-term boost for uranium from the biggest trend in investing. So the article that's going that we're covering here is talking about how really nuclear power, people are going to start realizing how actually it is clean and nations are going to have to turn to it very, very quickly. Now, the U.S. has, has a couple of nuclear power plants. And when you look at them, What's happening is, like they mentioned, it takes on average $60 per pound to get uranium, but the price per pound for uranium in the market is $44. So you can't do that, right? It's like, um, that's like making a necklace and it costs you a hundred dollars to make the necklace, but then you sell it for, for $80. That doesn't make sense, right? You're losing $20 on every sale of the necklace costs you a hundred to make. You're selling it for 80, you're losing money, right? So the idea for nuclear is this, like, look, it has to become, when it becomes higher in demand, the producers, the suppliers are going to start mining uranium again. They're going to start doing it so that they can have nuclear power plants. So when that happens, these are investment opportunities. People should be buying up uranium companies and nuclear power companies because ultimately they will turn into huge slush funds for a bunch of people. And it will save the world, right? Because nuclear power will essentially be used in India and China and other places. Whether the environmentalists like it or not, it's going to be used. It's going to be grown. It's going to be everywhere. It's going to be everywhere because solar and wind, we just it just doesn't it doesn't cut it. it does well for some people, but it's not going to do well for the third world countries. It's not going to do well for Africa. It's not going to do well for these nations that absolutely need a bunch of power and they need it now. They can't just be relying on 
this is what I would consider sustainable, great energy. Everyone loves it. But at the end of the day, these other nations cannot rely on it entirely. So I just wanted to go over that with you guys and just kind of explain the um, the aspects that go into that of, of nuclear power. People don't realize how important it is. So the last article that I'm going to go into is about King Charles II of the Spanish Empire. And this is definitely very, very deep um, for people who like history. You're definitely going to want to listen to this. So the imbecile king, this is the title of the article. It's really funny, by the way, that this person decided to write this article because I was also, when I learned about history, I thought of Biden, really. I thought of Joe Biden as Charles II. And this is incredible correlation. I might even just cut this and make this its own separate podcast, honestly. But um, we'll have to see. So the imbecile king who put his foot on the gas pedal. It's an article from the Zero Hedge. Charles II was only three years old when he became the supreme ruler of the Spanish Empire in 1665. But anyone who took just one look at the child knew they were all doomed. Which, by the way, there were French spies, English spies, Dutch spies, uh, Portuguese spies, all inside of the chamber trying to find out what was going to happen with this birth of Charles II. And, um, well, I'll go, I'll go on. Charles had come from a long line of prominent European nobles known as the Habsburgs, a family so exclusive that they frequently married one another in order to keep their bloodline pure. Genetic defects abounded as a result. Of course, we know that if you are crossbreeding with your own family, you end up getting genetic defects. And this is why a lot of people don't like that, obviously. Charles II inherited some of the worst of these genetic defects. His father and mother were uncle and niece. That's kind of gross. And his grandparents were first cousins. Oh, yeah, that's right. His father. Oh, yeah, I remember that now. Um... And his grandparents were first cousins. So it comes as no surprise that Charles II was deformed, spindly, weak, constantly sick, and partially paralyzed. He was also referred to by his contemporaries as the imbecile king for his slow-witted stupidity. So the guy's a fucking idiot. He's an idiot, but he's ruling over this entire this, this huge empire. Let me get into that. Spain had been the dominant European superpower only a century prior to Charles II. It had vast colonies all over the world, a terrifying army and navy, and unimaginable wealth. It truly is unimaginable. More wealth, I think, than the United States today. But history proves that an empire's wealth and power never last forever. And even well before Charles II took the throne, Spanish rulers were already running everything into the ground. One clear lesson from history is that empires tend to be extremely expensive, especially when you're the dominant superpower and all of your rivals are constantly waging war against you. So this is so, so, so true, guys. I want you to imagine a world where there were pirates and looting and alliances with other strong countries, not as not as strong as Spain, but when they aligned with one another, they were able to defeat Spain. They were able to do, they were able to take over in different colonies of Spain, especially in the Americas. We're talking about Cuba. We're talking about Honduras. We're talking about Mexico. We're talking about Panama. We're talking about South America, Argentina, even the Portuguese had a share in that, obviously Brazil, Portuguese, all this stuff. But the Spanish Empire still had a lot of control over those areas. Well, when you have like the Portuguese and 
the the English they hate each other, but they combined forces to to try and fight the Spanish and try to do all this stuff. You know, it was kind of hard. You know, you you clearly always have people going against you. That's where the U.S. is today. I mean, the U.S. has rivals, and these rivals are joining forces. I would think China and Russia, honestly, are connecting very deeply right now. They're they're on the same page with a lot of things, and they're not on the same page with other things. So it's not like they're totally friendly, you know. Um, continuing with, with this article. Spain was no exception. Their empire was extremely expensive to administer, and they were routinely engaged in costly wars. By the way, in Spain, uh, or not Spain itself, but like out in these colonies, these sort of these these far off outposts like Mexico and Panama, you know, these people, these soldiers, they were not paid enough. You know, they 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 felt that their payment was not good, and so their loyalty to Spain was being questioned. Their commitment to the Spanish Empire was being questioned because the Spanish, although they had a very rigid system, they had a very good system that worked for a century or longer, they 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 lost that deep touch with with I think national pride and um real like genuine care over their citizens. And I think that's where they made a big mistake. They just stopped caring about their army. They stopped caring about their soldiers, the people that put their life on the line for them, right? They thought that you know, just a little pay would do enough, right? So continue with this article. The emperors were forced to borrow a lot of money to pay for these wars. And Spain's debt became so vast that the government defaulted at least seven times between the mid-1500s and the mid-1600s. So that's 1550s to 1650s. I mean, they literally borrowed so much money from all these financiers. These these are the real bankers that have been in control for the world for obviously for a long time. Um, desperate to make ends meet, the government also hiked taxes to exorbitant levels, including imposing a 14% sales tax. Somewhere the governor of California is taking notes. That's in parentheses. The government also predictably began rapidly expanding the money supply and debasing its own currency. Doesn't this sound familiar? The U.S. dollar overprinting it, getting more money. U.S. Treasury asking the Federal Reserve for more money, more currency. This is expanding the money supply. That's what we're doing now, which expanding the money supply always uh, decreases the value of the money itself. Resulting in one of the world's long-term episodes of inflation in all of human history up to that point. So this is the idea of inflation. We are in the worst inflation, by the way, right now. Over 40 years, the worst inflation in 40 years right now happening. Spain's emperors also began interfering heavily in trade and commerce. They passed rules granting special monopolies to favored businesses, essentially killing off competition. And they inserted extreme government bureaucracy into some of the most important industries like shipping and mining. This is so true. There were a lot of different um, you know, d- competitors and things. And this is why the English system ended up triumphing because you know, the English system was based off of competition. And yes, there were big banks and things at the time, the Rothschilds later in the 1800s. Uh, but you have this idea of like true, honest to God business. So you know, when at the end of the day, you when you have competition, you have a healthy amount of of uh, producers in the market, and the producers in the market will make a difference. You know, they'll make changes based on you know the demand for the consumer. The consumer changes all these things, and if they have trade with other nations, best not to be at war with them. Best not to have all these issues. And then when you you create this bureaucracy, you know you're creating a lot of um, 
animosity within the citizens because they feel like they don't have any freedom. They feel like they can't create something because some other big company has it in with some politicians. So that's exactly what's happening today, right? Um, I'm getting a question from this. What is it? What is the government's desire to cause inflation? Usually it's because they're printing more money for more government programs similar to what's happening in the United States Congress. They ask for these large programs that they think they can pay for, and so they request a lot of money. Well, in this case, what was happening is war. So there were all these different wars happening, so they ended up printing more money, right? Saying that they had more money than they really did. In this day and, t day and time, they had control of the largest uh, gold reserve and silver reserve. They were mining gold out of – gold and silver were being mined out of Mexico and Panama and all these areas – they were minting all these coins. It was actually so relevant at the time that uh, there's Spanish galleons, apparently famous ones, that have sunk full of gold, full of silver that are still to this day people are looking for and, and hunting. Um, so again, find it very fascinating that that's actually a reality. So that's why inflation tends to happen in these different countries. So reading from the article, part of this decline was because of emerging social trends. In the early 1400s and early 1500s, the seas were teeming with Spanish explorers, yeah, Cortes, Ponce de Leon, etc. These men were regarded as national heroes in Spain, and international trade was considered a highly respected industry. By the mid-1600s, however, trade, commerce, and production had fallen out of favor. Traders and industrialists were viewed with suspicion instead of esteem. The economies in cities like Valencia which had once been famous for its factories and high-quality products, quickly decayed. And suddenly, Spain found itself importing most of its goods and services from its chief rivals, France, England, and the Netherlands. Meanwhile, the Spanish Inquisition was busy killing off thousands of intellectuals and condemning tens of thousands more to life imprisonment. Their crime? Expressing independent thought that differed from the official narrative. Yeah, the Spanish, if I could say anything about the Spanish, they had their narratives. They had their ways of viewing the world, and that shit was dispersed down to the gov governor level, down to the citizen level, and they had it all systematized that way. Spain's message to the world was clear. Freedom of thought had no place in the empire. This is so true. This is why the pirates, with their democracy, their freedom, liberty-loving energy, which also be savages. It's not like they were perfect. They were savages, okay? Their ideology actually was favorable to even some Spanish sailors. Uh, Spanish sailors tended to join the pirates, um, as, as, as well as French and uh, English, especially English. But ultimately, these pirates, you know, they were able to fight the Spanish. They were able to think a lot more uh, creatively in their war with the Spanish. You know, the Spanish were so rigid and they were so stuck in their ways that the pirates were able to outmaneuver. They were able to even outgun them sometimes and doing it all very strategically. So it's very interesting how, you know, they, they really think that innovation was really not a part of Spain's uh, criteria anymore. And as a final point, Spain had suffered a series of embarrassing military defeats from the late 1500s through the mid-1600s, including the Spanish Armada's humiliating loss to the English in 1588. There was a hurricane that actually destroyed the Spanish Armada. It's the largest Spanish fleet ever built. Suddenly, the rest of Europe realized that Spain was not invincible. The empire was bankrupt, economically weak, socially decayed, and its military had been embarrassed. Remember, 
This was already the situation before 1665. This is the situation before the retarded King Charles II. And that's when Charles II took the throne. In other words, a weak, mentally incompetent fool was put in charge of an empire that was already in serious decline and whose chief rivals were rising rapidly. You don't need a PhD in European history to figure out how that movie ended. The situation became much worse under Charles II, and within a few decades, Spain would go on to lose a major war against its rivals that struck the final blow to its dominance. That's when the torch was passed and France became the dominant superpower. Eventually, the UK surpassed France, then the United States surpassed the UK. This is how empires rise and fall. This cycle has been taking place for more than 5,000 years. Empires rise and fall. I just said that. That's so funny. That's like next on the thing. Economies rise and fall, and no nation holds the top spot forever. It's not hard to understand why. When an economy is on the rise, people are hungry. They work hard. They save money. They're focused on the future. Governments run lean budgets and spend responsibly. They maintain a sound currency. Once an economy has reached its peak, however, priorities change. Hard work and saving are no longer prized social values. People become uh, more focused on consuming in the present rather than investing in the future. Debt levels skyrocket. Government spending balloons. Regulations soar. Prices rise. Little by little, a nation chips away at the very values and institutions that made them powerful to begin with. If fiscal responsibility has made the nation wealthy, they begin printing record sums of money, engineering inflation, and taking on mountains of debt. If capitalism has made the economy prosperous, they cheer socialism. If personal freedom and self-reliance have created a strong society, they embrace totalitarianism, intolerance, and censorship. This is a great article. Not to mention, there are always seems to be some rival Rising power lurking, ready to take advantage of the situation, and some weak leadership like Charles II, who hits the gas pedal on the way towards this demise. This story is as old as human civilization, and while the exact circumstances today are different, the themes are very similar. So I read to you that article from the Zero Hedge. I'm going to post it in the uh, description of the podcast. Um... Because, you know, we're in a very similar situation. When you study history like this, you have a new level of respect for what has happened because it relates to today in a deep way. And just the same way that the the uh, Spanish at that time had had humiliating defeats in war, had had costly wars, had had in, they had inflation, they regulated their economy to get rid of all the intellectuals, they... Um, destroyed prosperity for lots of people. Entire cities were remade because they didn't value the industrialization of the city itself. So city economies in Spain were destroyed. Same thing's happening in New York and LA right now. There's all of this relatable. So look, you have Charles II, who's an imbecile. Now he was, he was a king uh, until his death in 1702. I mean, Charles II was king from 1665 to 1702. And in 1702, after the death of Charles II, the, um, what was it called? It was like, it was like, what was that war called? The huge European war that happened right after that. I just talked about this recently. But it was this huge re European war that happened right after Charles II in 1702. So whatever, whatever war started, um, it was... 
the English and the Dutch, they actually hated each other, but they, they actually made an alliance. Uh, and it was the French, the Spanish, um, and the Portuguese all facing off against each other. So it was like a world war at that time. So it's also really, really interesting. Well, similarly, we have we have Biden, who's this, you know, cognitively declining old man who's has no control. And based off of what I just read to you guys in the beginning of the podcast, uh, by the way, if I make this another podcast, I might make this separately. Then just realize that I had a, a first podcast before this one. But when we mentioned how our U.S. policy and international affairs when it comes to Russia, when it comes to China, are completely confusing. Nobody knows what the U.S. is really going to do. Nobody knows what the U.S. is actually doing. Nobody knows what the U.S. Uh, would do to respond to certain things like a, a, an invasion of Ukraine by Russia or an invasion of Taiwan by China, whatever you want to call that. Um, so with all this confusion, this is what you're seeing. You're seeing a, a, an empire decline. Like the head of the empire, the head of the U.S. right now is a total idiot, a total idiot. Um, not only is he a blowhard, he was an idiot. He's always been an idiot. Um, but he is a he's he's literally like dying. I mean, he's literally dying. So you have that correlation, and then again, you have inflation. The inflation issue is a huge problem. That's why we talk about Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies on this podcast a lot because, you know, it is the reason why um, the country is going to end up tanking is because of inflation. Inflation is essentially the death knell for it all. So just like the Spanish had inflation because they were paying for all those wars in the 1500s and the 1600s, they were a huge empire having to maintain all this stuff. You have all of these different things that were correlating with the death of that Spanish empire, very similarly to the U.S. I mean, you're seeing everything happen before our eyes. So until the U.S. can actually get out of this slump, put people in power that are actually going to assert the dominance of the United States, that are actually going to um, put the people first, obviously stop making all these international agreements and alignments that are putting us in all these foreign wars and all these issues, while at the same time asserting their strength national security wise to know that if you invade Taiwan or if you go into different countries, you're going to end up hurting the nation of the, the United States itself. So you want to balance that out. You want to know how to do certain things and when to do them. So until we realize that, until we actually understand that as a nation, our people are losing our own um, relationship with, 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 the, with the constitution, um, with the principles uh, estowed in the, in the national fabric that made up who we are and, and made up the laws that the, the laws that govern us and the natural laws of you know the liberties that we currently have. I mean, these are all things that people are losing touch with, even though they are amazing things and what make us great. And so we have to get back to the fact that, you know, we do not want to end up like the Spanish Empire. Even though a lot of these different historical trends are aligning today, we can turn the ship around. That's my message for everybody is to know that, you know, all these things are happening, but at the end of the day, you you always have to take things into your own hands. A lot of people really appreciate and love the news analysis, this kind of stuff. That's awesome. I mean, I love doing this stuff too. So I wanted you guys to know that. Um, I appreciate y'all all tuning in. You guys have an awesome rest of your day. Peace.